0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Hope everyone is staying safe checking in on loved ones. It is open in America, but the world still needs our help. If you need resources or want to get involved, go to heritageradionetwork.org. And please make sure to take time to check in with yourself. We are very excited to sit down with an old friend, Nathan Hazard, proprietor, owner of Little Bear Bottle Shop, San Bernardino Mountains. He talks to us about his career in the music industry, his career in the food and beverage industry, and him leaving LA without a real plan to open up his own shop. It's a really inspiring tale, a lot of great tips if you're thinking about doing something in your own life. And it's uh, just a great great conversation with a good friend. And then we dig deep into the archives for the present, which we recorded at Roberta's in the shipping containers It's a duo consisting of Rusty and Mina, some killer electronic music, and we think it's just a real good vibe for a Sunday. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN.org.
3: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
4: No time to think. No time to think. No time to worry about the consequences. No time to think. No time to think. No time to worry.
2: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. So good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Congratulations on opening the store, Little Bear Bottle Shop. For our listeners who are unfamiliar about what it is and where it is, what is it? (laughs)
5: Little Bear Bottle Shop is uh, a very small, curated, kind of boutique, wine and spirits shop. Um, in the San Bernardino mountains of Southern California, up in Sky Forest, California.
2: Gorgeous.
5: Gorgeous country. It is. it is. I mean, it's we're situated too right on highway 18, which was the rim of the world highway kind of has a, a good cool history in Southern California. Um, but it's just literally right on the cliff and it 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 actually is above the clouds most of the time. so the mm. name is accurate. I love it. Um, so before, we
2: get into sort of your cocktail history and, and more about the store. I want to go back because if I remember correctly, you actually started in the music industry way, in a lifetime ago, um, what drew you in? What did you do back in the music industry?
5: Yeah, I started in the music industry when I first got to LA in, um, gosh, like 2005, I moved to LA from Oregon and, um, I was one of my good friends, Kat Solon, she was um, directing some music videos, and uh, she's a brilliant artist. And I, I was helping her out with some projects and really enjoyed the industry, um, needed a change of, of scenery, so ended up moving down to LA kind of on a whim and uh, working first in the music in, music video industry for for several months before um landing a pretty pretty sweet label gig at warner brothers mm. records and then uh then moved myself into a and r where i realized i wanted to be if i was going to be in that industry um, as a music lover and um yeah i actually worked there for a long time i worked in the industry for a long time i think about 10 years in total and uh did some artist management at the back end some producer management and some tour managing and um Loved, loved the whole process, learned a lot, learned a lot about myself. Um, but, you know, I think as we do on this journey, kind of started prioritizing, you know, value shifting and all that good sure. stuff. And, um, yeah, moved into another fun project. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's so funny because when I think about my time in music and I think about what I drank, it was usually beers or shots. It was not... <laughs> totally. Um, you know, very well-crafted rum drinks like you got into.
5: Um, So what... It's true, actually. Guinness. Guinness, (laughs) I called Guinness uh, an A&R dinner.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, two pints of that. And you're like, well, I don't need to sit down and eat. Um, But, you know, uh, you obviously have moved into the cocktail world and became a brand ambassador for for some rum companies. Um, But when did you start shifting maybe out of the music industry, into the bar industry? When did you start saying like, maybe I need more than just a beer and a shot at a show?
5: <laughs> uh, these are good questions. So I guess for me, I was already interested in the world mm. of food and beverage um, from the time I was, um, well, mostly I would say from when I was in college, I was working at a really fine dining, like farm to table you know, restaurant in Eugene, Oregon. And that's where I really learned about wine that's where I learned about you know farmers and slow food, um, you know all these important things that are now the cornerstone of of our of our food culture. but I was just learning about them at that in my formative years um, and then I went on to do music, still appreciated a great meal obviously um, and a, and a great cocktail but um you know I think what it was is I, I needed a creative outlet. I have a creative Ooh. background. Um, I was in school for art and design and, and creating spaces and all this stuff. So for me, I needed an outlet. And what it was in that golden era of food blogs in what, 2000, you know, 2010 or so. Yeah, mid 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started a little food blog just as, as like an outlet. And I was going to like, you know, bar and restaurant openings and writing about it, taking pictures on crappy little digital cameras, and, you know,
6: <laughs> just put
5: together this little blog for just, you know, that, like spewing about all the cool stuff that LA had to offer. And, and I mean, these are important years for LA too. You know, LA was just sure. starting to open cocktail bars at that time. We just got good coffee at that time. So everything was kind of up and coming in LA. So it felt great to document that. Um, that then turned into a podcast, actually, a fellow mm. blogger, started um the first uh the first of its kind like all food and beverage podcast network called home fries and we i was uh you know brought on with a couple of other guys to do this creative home entertaining podcast and very quickly because of our varying interests, i became the quote-unquote drink guy Mm. because i was always talking about oh we should have this type of a cocktail with that theme or we should do this wine or that beer and um this podcast then turned into actually doing real events and then that (laughs) kind of turned into um, something that evolved into a pop-up restaurant and bar experience called the coconut club right so myself and one of my my co-hosts we started doing private dinners these little pop-up events Um, you know he worked in animation so he had a couple like Kind of celebrity clients who were like, "Hey, come over to my house and I have this important meeting. Make us a crazy, crazy, over the top, you know, experience." And I would come in and do strange cocktails and bizarre vessels, and he would make crazy food. And um, people would tell us every time, "You should really do this. You should, you should make do events. You should, you know, I don't know, keep, follow this like, this dream." And so we did, and we started the started the Coconut Club and. You know, I still to the same am incredibly proud of Coconut Club. It was, um, sure. we ran for about four years. It was, um, you know, we got really good, you know, media, press feedback um, and coverage at that time. And we could, it was one of the things where we almost weren't sure how to keep up with it. I was still working in music. Um, and this is around the time I was tour managing. So I'd be like getting on a plane to Japan and then getting home and running and batching cocktails <laughs> and, you know, doing these events. I was yeah. Like, literally running myself ragged and um but it was amazing it was it was really you know i was i'm really proud of the stuff we put out there in the world and the ideas and um you know this was kind of tiki inspired but before that big tiki comeback so right that was part of the popularity is you know people were kind of getting interested in that kind of tropical escapism in that moment and um you know we were bringing even another spin to it it was a little more cheeky it was more 80s and um, super campy. So, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm rambling.
2: But. No, 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 no. It's it's great. I mean, it's it's um, it's a really good insight to the time because that was such an interesting time in food and in, in both uh, LA and then also uh, when I was in New York and that was really the height of pop up underground secret dinners and things like that. Um, but absolutely, yeah. You know, now with Instagram and m- the hunger for content and the new there was uh, how do I say this? There's a legitimacy that sometimes get heaps on something now when it's new. It's like, this is the new thing. Yeah. It's a backyard. It's, it's established. Here's eight articles back then it was the restaurant world. And then the, what you were doing with coconut club and all that was sort of sitting outside of what was considered maybe professional or mainstream or even credible because people were turning their noses up at, you know, people who didn't pay a rent or have a real place or things like that. I think the pandemic upended that even more and about like what you do and location and where you do it and how you're doing it. But, you know, you were lucky enough to make the shift from doing these pop-ups and being outside of the industry in the music industry to becoming, you know, a brand ambassador to being a respected cocktail guy. How did you make that jump? And yep. how long did it take you to feel legitimate or if not legitimate, at least respected and accepted by some people who were some of the gatekeepers?
5: Oh yeah. That's, that's a really good question. Cause I mean, something that we all deal with all the time is sure. imposter syndrome. Right? I mean, I deal with it. Even I, I right
2: now talking to you, I'm like, man, eh, maybe he'll <laughs> answer my questions. I don't know. I don't know. Um,
5: <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, that, those are great questions. I, I, I think, um, you know, I think I still sometimes ask myself like, am I, am I, am I legitimate? (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I I think with coconut club, as soon as, um, I mean, we were pretty quickly selling out. We were full house. We we turned it into a members only club to keep kind of the, sorry, but the Yelpers out um, because there were so many people who were just, you know, wanting to show up just to complain or or not really have a good time. Uh, So we made it a private club. It was, not that private, it was $25 to be a member. Sure. But all, what that did is it cut out, you know, the randos and uh, everyone was there to have a good time. And and I think I I think I just had got so much positive reinforcement from that experience. And I realized that even though I had had like a huge gap in my like hospitality career between, you know, being in college to yeah. the present moment, um, you know, I realized that I did have a lot of great base of knowledge um, I had been paying attention all those years regardless of practice and um, you know and while I was comfortable with the term enthusiast I also knew that I had really important ideas to bring mm-hmm. to the table that were well received so there was a growing confidence in me as we went on and, and I think the moment that kind of really clicked it for me you know um, in 2017 I think it was you know, LA Weekly, they every year they do that annual people issue where they highlight fifty people and they asked me to be one of the people that year. And so for me I was like, okay, if I'm sharing a spread, you know, with Eva Longoria (laughs) and, you know, people are saying that I'm doing really cool shit, then maybe that maybe I'm not an imposter. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's okay. And I've taught myself you know enough to get to this level so i never went around saying oh yeah I'm a, i've been a bartender for 20 years because right. like and i didn't think that was really necessary either i think we're seeing nowadays too that there's so many different paths you can take to get to the same goal and you know mine was just different and um i'm okay with that <laughs> I, w- I got to a place where i was okay with that too um so what was the second part of your question um i guess you sort there was of one. oh how did i get to the the ambassadorship and all that yeah 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 so that came also so so with the with the response to the club um i then also had people like asking me to work for their brand and that was also kind of new for me um obviously and legitimized me in a lot of ways uh and i did a couple cool campaigns kind of getting my my feet wet. Um, you know, I did, I did an Aperol like spritz campaign. It was like their first U U.S. side spritz campaign. And I did, um, I helped on the launch of this product with absolute innovation, working with their team in Sweden on that and using LA as a test market, um, and helped them also then develop, uh, an Aquavit product that's on the market now. So I got, it was fun because it was creative. It wasn't yeah. just, um, you know, I was, I was creating content. I was really reaching out to the community, getting to know, creating my own little network in the industry in Los Angeles. Um, and then kind of at the the height of Coconut Club, where we kind of hit that now what moment, um, you know, everyone asked if we were going to do a brick and mortar tiki bar. And I was like, absolutely not. One, <laughs> we're like yeah. borderline tiki. And I don't really want to jump on that train. I already mm-hmm. was having some issues with, you know, the appropriation aspects of tiki. I would say actually the one, not negative, but the one, lightly like insightful kind of um critique that i took very seriously was when munchies came and did a review of our event mm. um and they said something about how, they were talking about how great it was and how different it was and how it wasn't just like tribal tiki but they did say you know wh- where's the line where mm. where does it become a where's appropriation play into this and um and it was really posed more as a question but i i took that question seriously yeah and um you know it's something that i kind of i think i struggled with a little bit with my conspirators on you know they were a little more flagrant and artistic and and out there and and you know weren't afraid to push, push boundaries and push buttons but i'm a libra and i'm so sensitive <laughs> and like yeah. I, I was like are you sure i don't know i don't like it so i was already inching back You're right and that was also the point where I was like well now what Shit or get off the pot like where you guys have been doing this pop-up for four years like what's your goal And, um, you know, it just seemed like the right time for me to kind of make a change. And so right around that time, uh, a rum company approached me and said, you know, your name keeps coming up. We're looking for an ambassador. And um, so I was happy to take it and (laughs) was happy to have a little stability at that moment as well. Um, So I started working Real McCoy Rum and um, ended up working with them for about three years. And, um, you know, my my territory kept growing. I kept, you know, pushing us, you know, into these different territories um, throughout the West, and then pre-pandemic kind of moved into a national role, mm. and then, and then, uh, and then the world had other plans for me yet again. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break because we're going to talk about
2: those other plans which came to exist uh, as Little Bear Bottle Shop. Uh, we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on hrn.org.
3: and her drink mortal slant to you assumes now what I think I get lost in thrills sometimes Oh, I get lost in my thoughts sometimes That's what I thought Switched a little chatter on the bathroom floor I can't stop I get lost in thrill sometimes Oh, I get lost in my thoughts sometimes No, I won't stop And I need night table for one For a second the temptation fell more than just fun I get lost in the thrill sometimes Oh, I get lost in the thrill sometimes
2: back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Nason Hazard, proprietor of Little Bear Bottle Shop. And obviously, it can't be stated enough how much the coronavirus and pandemic devastated all aspects of life and industries, including the F&B industry, which you alluded to right before the break. Um, and you had been an L.A. staple for years, but you eventually decided to leave. What (laughs) made you decide to leave L.A.? And what advice can you give to other members of the industry who are thinking about making a similar move now that the rules have been rewritten a bit?
5: Uh, well, you know, the funny thing about that is I never really intended to leave LA. <laughs> I, 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 really did it. It wasn't this master plan that I had been drafting for years or anything. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I had started, um, you know, a job that was quickly growing and becoming a national role. So I was pretty much living out of a suitcase. Um, mm. and I was on the road constantly. And I think what happened is I had a little burnout at the end of 2019. Mm. And I decided I need to find something for myself. I need a safe place. I need a quiet place. I need somewhere to come home to. And I was coming home to an apartment in Highland Park, and it was great, but it was, you know, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of, a lot of my accounts were just around the corner. There was always distraction. So, you know, I had to, I don't know. And I, you know, I was getting to a place where I kind of wanted to invest, you know, in in a piece of property, but I knew I could never afford LA. So it just was like, a stress relief kind of tool for me was like, you know, cruising Zillow. (laughs) I'm sure sure a lot of people do that. Oh yeah. And, uh, and I just kept looking in like the mountains, like Idlewild or, you know, it just sounded like so peaceful. And so like, what a nice respite, you know? And, uh, and then looking, you know, I saw Idlewild start blowing up. So I was like, well, shoot, that's expensive now. And then I started kind of hopped over to another mountain range in SoCal, the San Bernardinos, um, and started kind of cruising around Big Bear and, uh, like Arrowhead just on the maps. Right. And, uh, it was all just like this fun little dreamy thing to just distract myself. And, um, and then on my 39th birthday, <clears throat> I found myself in town. I didn't have any plans cause I was at that point where I was traveling so much. I kind of just didn't even have like a base anymore. I didn't mm-hmm. have like friends, like regular friends I would spend a birthday with or I just felt really out of sorts. So I just got in the car and drove to the mountains and started going to open houses. And, uh, it was, I don't know. It was just like a weird. It's, this is when everything just started kind of falling into place in a weird way I can't explain. But um, you know, I met a realtor that day, and she sunk her claws into me and was like really encouraging, gave me a ton of information about the area, um, kind of started making me realize that it was even that it was possible, and I didn't really think it was up until that point. And um, so, long story short, I basically pursued buying a property in, on the mountain here because I figured I could, and it was probably going to be an investment. I'd probably rent Airbnb. I didn't know, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep exploring this. Well, (laughs) I found third, third time's a charm. I found a house fit on it. And, uh, I closed the week, uh, when things were getting really weird with coronavirus, Mm -hmm. like, and it was that kind of that moment where all these people in my life were like, are you sure you should pull out? Don't do this. We don't know what's happening. Like, don't make a big mistake. It could, this could be a financial failure. And I was, of course, like, what the hell do I do? You know, sure. I've already gone this far. I'm already down the path, like, you know, deposits down, all these things. <laughs> so I went into like close escrow, decided to move forward. And literally like, as I was walking out, they like turned the sign to close and were like, you're literally the last person that's coming in this building. Um, I still don't even know if, they've, if they're open. Wow. And uh, I moved, like, I had my movers scheduled the week of lockdown. So it was just like one of those wild surreal moments where I'm like are they going to cancel am I even allowed to be on the highway like we if you think back to how we all No of I'm course like moment, right? of course we didn't know anything we thought at any moment we'd get a new announcement that whatever so I was like I had just gone off a plane from Seattle I wasn't feeling well and the world was closing down Well sure enough I did I did have coronavirus I I was sick while I was packing up my apartment Wow and um And then I did move that first week and of lockdown. And then as soon as I was like unpacking the the truck, it started snowing. Hmm. And so then my first few days in my new house in this foreign place, I was snowed in and it was just like really, really dramatically, you know, like talk about a chapter, you know, like it was just full on, everything suddenly was different. The whole world was different. So, um, you know, I, I stayed, I just, was in the house full time, it was my house now. I subleased my apartment in Highland Park and um everything was just different from then on. And it was, I think getting t- to know a new place in that setting was super strange, but also kind of, I don't know, it was just, it was kind of bizarre and amazing. So that's how I ended up here. It wasn't like this grand plan. Hmm. It was more like, uh and and you know, <laughs> not to toot my own horn, I guess, I guess I'm ahead of the trends, but like, yeah, now everyone's like, oh, so you left because of the pandemic. I'm like, actually I didn't. I, <laughs> I, I mean, look, I happened, We can I happened before. We can edit pandemic, out
2: that, but. that incredible story and you can just go on the record and be like, yeah, my master plan was, I saw the shift of uh city to rural and I thought that I would open up a new store. <laughs> um, so listen, so you're in this new place, you're in this new town um, without, maybe the master plan that everyone thinks you have now. Did you already have the idea for little bear? Was that something in the back of your mind? Did you, you know, think that opening up, I mean, the great thing about it is the pandemic showed that people want to either have a drink or have a store that they can trust and get good stuff from. Um, But how did, how did, how did the idea come to your mind? where did you get the experience? Um, What was the process of opening?
5: Well, a big piece of that puzzle is Barkeeper Silver Lake. Mm. So I if you aren't familiar Barkeeper was really the first cocktail centric bottle shop sure. in the United States. They you know they kind of blaze this idea of you know the ritual of cocktail, a place where you can get any type of bitters you can imagine, you know, it, it's a bar it's a bartender's head shop essentially. So I had always been an with barkeeper cuz they opened around the time I moved to LA and um and i when i lost my first job in the music industry um i approached my friend who was working there and, and it was the holidays and i said hey are you guys looking for extra help during the holidays he said actually yes uh, i met joe keeper the owner came in and i started working there just throughout the holiday season then that became hey we like you stay around so i, I would work on sundays i was still you know even when i got another job i was I was going and working on the weekends at Barkeeper. That went on for about six years. So the whole time I was doing Coconut Club, the whole time I was doing a lot of these other things, I had a couple days a week, maybe even just one day a week at Barkeeper. And that gave me insight into even another aspect of the industry. I mean, I think what I like about my experience is that I've worked really on all sides right. of the beverage industry. Sure. Um, and, ha- and I would say have a pretty good insight into how it works. So... Um, you know, that was always kind of like a dream because I had seen this idealized version of this thing. Um, you know, to me, it was like, oh, that would be cool one day to have something like that of my own. And I think that was in the back of my mind when I bought the house up here, moved mm. up here was maybe one day down the road, you know, it was either like that or what, like a B&B, right? So sure. Was like the dreams. like <laughs> at some point when I'm older, right. I'm going to open this cool, cute little hotel or, you know, whatever. So I was thinking down the road, uh, this was definitely not a plan concrete plan so that's where i kind of learned a lot about how to run a store like this although Mm. let's be clear i'm I'm learning every day because i've never run one before until now uh but that's where some of that knowledge base came from um so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a plan but what happened was um around october of 2020 i you know i had been kind of not fully furloughed, not fully working, but you know, let's be clear, bars were closed, sure. airports were closed. Like I wasn't going anywhere, I wasn't doing anything. And I started feeling that kind of like worrying in my center of like mm-hmm. uselessness, especially being so removed from the world sure. up here. And um, so, you know, the ideas were percolating and I, I was just kind of like keeping an eye open on like properties I was passing and whatnot. Um, but then once I met who is now my landlord, and heard his vision for this property that my shop is on. Um, I started realizing very quickly, okay, I want to do this. And I need to figure out how to do it very, very quickly mm. <laughs> because this is an opportunity. Um, you know, I had just been talking to a friend of mine who has a record store up here, um, about how this mountain needs some music. It needs like a, a hub, a cultural hub that's a little younger. That is, um, you know, bringing something contemporary to the scene, because let's be honest, it's kind of a sleepy tourist town for sure. the most part up here. Um, and the term that I threw out was, you know, we need like a, we need a Pappy and Harriet's. We need mm-hmm. a cool, cozy, rustic um, space that, you know, people can gather at. Not a week later, I meet Chip, who's my landlord and, and, and now friend, and he was, He said, yeah, I really want to create a a vibe on this corner, you know, kind of like Pappy and Harriet, but like in the mountains. Love it. And I just went, what the frick? It's called kismet. Exactly. And um, so it all started kind of falling into place. He really liked my idea. And then it was all about the real true pandemic um, pivot, you know, obstacle, which is money. How How do you borrow money in the age of PPP? Well, I quickly learned that you can't. So it became a full on like grassroots, like, how the heck can I make this work? And, you know, just talking to people in my in my world and trying to find you know any way to make it happen. And I'm still amazed that I was able to make it happen. But uh, I did it on my own, which is something I'm also very proud of. Um, I don't have partners. I don't have investors. It's just lenders and some belief that I can do it. And uh, yeah, so um, between October and a couple weeks ago, it was just like, you know, trying to navigate dealing with counties (laughs) during COVID and, you know, all of the obstacles that, um, you know, come with opening a business, but with the added obstacle of a pandemic. And um, yeah, I just, so I finally opened, I was a few months delayed, but that was kind of to be expected. and finally opened the doors about two and a half weeks ago. So it's still brand new, but the response um, has been amazing. I think people up here were thirsty for this, you know? Nice pun, very (laughs) Um, good. Yeah, and uh, you know, my whole thing was, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's a small town. Uh, You know, I've been very careful about how I approach this, how I communicate about it. Mm. Um, I'm not stepping on toes. I'm not here to take business from anyone. If anything, it's quite the opposite. And so people come in here and they say, wow, you, I don't know a lot of these brands. I've never seen these before. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the, that's kind of the point. (laughs) I'm not here to compete with the grocery store down the street. I'm here to, to supplement and complement and bring something different to the mountain that isn't here. You know, I'm, I could positively say these are the first bottles of natural wine that have touched this mountain. Mm. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm definitely feeling the appreciation on that front from locals, from part-timers, because, uh, as you mentioned, there is a lot of flight happening um, or more, not flight, but um, expansion, and there's a lot of people up here from, I mean, let's be clear, Los Angeles is only an hour and 15 minutes drive yeah. from where I am right now. Um, you know, I think it's it's halfway to Palm Springs essentially, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, there's definitely a need for it, and people who are looking for it. nice to be here. Yeah. I think
2: now hearing your experience, hearing what you've gone through, hearing that it's both unique, but also a lot of people probably have either had the thought or, or moved out of a big city and and work in F and B and, or maybe start looking to do their own thing. Um, What is the one piece of advice you could give to people who are looking to either open up their own little shop or restaurant or something in a small town, you know, in something that is not uh, a major city or not even like a a minor city. Um, And obviously I I get the respect to community. I get the offering something that isn't really there and not competing, but um, something that you hadn't thought about until you were standing there with the doors open to your own business.
5: Hmm. Um, well, I mean, besides, I mean, the thing that I didn't expect to be as big of a deal is, is the word of mouth, the small town, mm. the, the not closing any, you know, keeping those doors wide open, winning people over as much as possible. Um, but I would also say, you know, I mean, for me, the biggest thing that I had to overcome really was just not not being afraid and this even ties in i guess to earlier and, and the imposter thing is like mm. and maybe it w- maybe it was having just having the experience of realizing that i could buy a house in a faraway place mm-hmm. like like made me a re- little less afraid but i would say getting over that hump and not being afraid i've i'm someone who's always operated out of fear i think most of my life and um you know i think moving up here and doing this it really kind of helped me um I don't know, like get to another step just in my own confidence, my own, you know, where I, where i like, just my character has changed so much in just a year. Um, and I, and I hate to say that p- the pandemic was probably a big part of that because, you know, in a way, I think I felt a little bit more able to take risks with that kind of, I think that fear of the un- unknown and mm. almost like the world's going to end anyway, shrug kind of a <laughs> thing, like yeah. help helped me kind of jump off the cliff. So so I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say that I have a lot of good advice because back to square one, I didn't plan any of this. Mm. And that sounds obnoxious, but it's actually true. It's all been more of like, I figured it out along the way. I, I mean, I remember just a year ago thinking, you know, what's my next step? Like I am here. I am burnt, burnt out on, you know, this gig that I love. But, you know, I can't I'm 40 years old. I don't want to be, you know, traveling nonstop and drinking 10 daiquiris a night. Forever, like yeah. that's not sustainable at all. So, what are you going to do now? And I had no idea. Mm. So it's kind of like I, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes the universe finds a way, and uh, and you know we just have to trust it. And I think that a lot of this was trust—trusting myself and um, trusting the signs and and making good decisions. You know, look, all we're just like, you know, all of the things that we've gone through have built us into this, you know. Um, creature we are now and and I think it was more just well I've done this so I can trust this decision done. you know I just wasn't ready until now I don't really know how else to say it
2: I love it um, and not to make light of the pandemic but I think that the whole world was sort of shown that there can be no plan sometimes and that no one knows anything and that there is just going to be an unexpected sure. twist, twist and turn to light and either you can lean into it if you're lucky enough to, or you can just you know make the changes you've always wanted to. Um, right.
5: Well, for me too. There was definitely a moment. Um, you know, I started once I lost my my job. I, I started coming to L. A. pretty regularly um, and working at barkeeper mm. because they were seen as an essential um, business. We were working masked um, and. I think just pulling back and simplifying my life so much at that time and having my main interactions be with customers who were, like you said, coming to their trusted place Mm. to get something, having that very simple and honest exchange with people without all the clutter of everyday life all around us or my other jobs or my distractions or pop ups or events, like just being focused on that exchange with a customer, I realized I actually got everything that I craved in my other job from that exchange. So rather than going out, educating a big staff or doing an event for a bunch of people, I was just talking one-on-one with someone Mm. about gin. And I realized I got just as much personal pleasure out of talking about bottles of gin with an individual as I did doing all that other stuff mm. and it was much better for my body and my brain and my well being to do it like that. So I think that's when I had the click of maybe this is the aspect that I should focus on next. And, um, yeah, I love that. It's, uh,
2: a lot of self-reflection. sometimes you'd be like, what makes me happy? What can, I, what makes me happy
5: and can also make me a living. Um, well, listen, and and people can feel that, and they can yeah. taste that, and smell yeah. that, and and you know the response to the shop up here so far has been a lot of a lot of people taking to social media to say go talk to Nathan. It's not mm. go to Little Bear Bottle Shop. It's go check this out. Go talk to Nathan. He'll help you find something amazing, and we're so excited. You know, so that that to me feels so good because it's authentic too. I'm like that is true. You're not just saying hey, go check this out, blah blah blah. It's like a post. It's like these are more personal responses to a business that I'm used to even seeing with other people. So it makes me feel really good because I can tell that my intention is being seen and that that, you know, that message is really getting across and I can tell that I'm enjoying it. So that's, hmm. that's a good place to start. Right. That's great. And uh, nothing
2: like the uh, validation of a stranger on Instagram to get rid of that imposter syndrome. Mm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, congratulations. If people want to check out the shop, um, either in person or online, where can they go?
5: Uh, LittleBearBottleShop.com or on socials, it's just at Little Bear Bottle Shop. No spaces. Um, and yeah, you know, for now, we're just an in-store experience. But, you know, I have plans to grow and do lots of different things uh, moving forward. So... You know, at some point, hopefully we'll be online and um, shipping and all that good stuff. But in the meantime, when you need a little break from the city or are ever in the San Bernardino Mountains, yeah,
2: please do stop by and see me. Amazing. Well, Nathan, thanks for sitting down with us. Good to see you. We have a song from the archives and then a great performance from the archives from the present here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org.
1: with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
7: Welcome back. Uh, In the studio, we have the present. Uh, Welcome to the show. Hello.
4: Thank you for having us.
7: Uh, Do you want to introduce yourselves? Hey, I'm Rusty Santos. And this is Mino Hashi. I really like the concept of your band of creating music that you feel right now, because it seems like pretty ephemeral. Um, how does the day-to-day or even week-to-week influence the music that you make?
8: It influences a lot.
4: Um, anything visceral we take in.
8: Do you feel like you feel the
7: world in a in a different way, and you know how does that affect the sounds or or how do you define a sound that's ever continually changing
8: i think a a lot depends on the music we're listening to uh, also what's going on in the world, but I think what we really like if we if our music the music we're kind of zoomed in on changes then the sound of our music changes um and that was sort of the concept of our band like when we started was completely different than what it is now because times have changed. It's a different world. So we just go with that feeling. What was the some of the earlier sounds or
7: give context for that?
8: Early on, we had a... Oh, sorry about the feedback there. Early on, we had a drummer, and we were kind of, like, making soundscapes, and it was still electronic, but it had a lot of live elements to it. Extreme of consciousness, mm-hmm. yeah.
7: Was it was in the material... Um, Preconceived, or was it just, like, get up on stage and just whatever came out of you?
4: More like uh, recording the house in the bedroom okay. type, yeah.
8: Got it. Well, our stage show, was we had a lot of parts. We would have improvised sections, but, I mean, you know, stuff that we knew we were going to play, and then it would go stretched out into jams. But the, on our first two records, a lot of them started as improvisations. I think, like, the best stuff was started as improvisations. We kind of worked them out into full-on orchestrations.
4: Yeah, kind of like capturing the moment.
8: And then
7: how did it evolve over time, or what are some of the out, outworld uh, influences that began to change the landscape?
8: Well, I think when we started, I was it was like heavy in the New York like kind of sound. Back then, we used to kind of mix acoustic and electric, and that was like a lot of the records I was a part of did that. And then we kind of made the decision, we we're either going to go with the acoustic or the electric, because kind of mixing them seemed to be... Um, like, not doing either side justice. So we we stuck with the electronic side of it. We're heavily into, in um, influenced by dance music and into dance music. And then there was a period around 2009 when it seemed like the music coming out of Chicago was more exciting to us than the music coming out of New York. And we kind of pushed our attention over there. And it coincided when we met with Rashad and those guys and heard of the, the first footwork that was coming out of there. And then... Working with them, they kind of showed us how they made tracks, and then that changed the way that we made tracks. So, like, maybe 10 years ago, even if we had the similar equipment, we approached it in a very different way than after we kind of learned how they are doing tracks. What? I, yeah? what's oh, go on.
4: I'd say um, our New York friends, um, the past 10 years, has been a really big influence on how we, um, yeah, play our music and share our music. And, uh, yeah, so I would say new york and chicago underground music has been a really big influence on the present
7: what was one of the things they showed you in making music that that kind of opened your eyes or changed the way that you made it
8: i think it was the way that you can change the rhythm aspect where it seemed like a lot of the the people we were making music with associated with at the time when we first on our first records you'd have like a stable drum beat that's going and then we kind of flip that so that the drum beat is always changing and then moving that around electronically. And and uh, whereas melodies used to kind of fly all over the place, then the melody be kind of became like a center point and then the rhythm is always shifting and fluctuating and same with like the bass and the, the kicks and those type of elements. It's just, instead of just having a loop, that's like where the creativity happens.
4: I would say um, I'd always had fun improvising and, you know, um, going free in music, uh, but the biggest thing that I learned uh, being in the studio with DJ Rashad was he would um, teach to play with the percussive elements inside the music and mm-hmm. that was uh, definitely like an eye-opening experience for me to not just the melody, but play with the percussive elements too. So you're dancing and singing at the same time when you're singing.
7: Uh, why don't we hear, uh, hear a song? Okay. Uh, what are you going to play first? Oh my god. Okay. Uh, live on Snacky Tunes.
8: Um, you recently played uh, with Panda Bear. Uh, what was that like? That was great. We, we love playing Bowery Ballroom. I think it was the third time we played there, and um, yeah, every time it's amazing because they have a, like kind of like a real intimate feel. We could connect with people. We, people were dancing, which is kind of surprised i think even the people dancing it was a good show
7: i that was like the one of the first venues i ever went to when i moved here and it, i didn't realize how good it was until i went to a lot of other venues but yeah. mm-hmm. they really built that one properly um do you have any other places that you love playing or like or areas that are receptive to the music you make
8: we had a show earlier this year um it was at a bar but it was a good bar it was elvis guest house mm. that, that was a good show um and yeah, I mean, it seemed like a lot of the places we still always like to play aren't around, so, you know, it kind of sh- changes really fast, but that one's still around, so that's good.
4: We played El Cortez. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like a week ago, two yeah,
8: weeks ago. Yeah, cool. that was cool. That's a brand new place. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then we, we might even play there again soon, actually, so mm-hmm. those are uh, good spots.
7: So we talked a little bit about um, where your music was and kind of how it evolved. What is your music like now in 2000? Well, I guess the towards the end of 2015, 2016. <laughs> Right
8: now. Well, yeah, we're kind of, um, we're, we're on a 160, kind of like a faster BPM than the halftime thing. Like you heard in that song, we can kind of go switch in between like the fast and the slow. I think that's like a big part of what we're interested in right now, are these like kind of flipping it upside down, halftime, and then double time.
4: I'm interested in mixing, mixing um, live piano. Maybe bring back the acoustic elements. That might be really interesting.
7: And then you said you know that's a different world earlier. Like, what um, outside influences of the world have affected the music that you make?
8: Well, we we did a show earlier this year in Lisbon, and we were super into the Prince of a Discos. Like, there's this whole group of people making music, and we kind of got similar to how we got into Chicago. This like thing is like really amazing. What these kids are doing? What, um, what is it called again? Well, Prince of Discos. Dis- Dis- that's the label. Yeah. It's called Prince of a Discos, but it's this group of kids from. Um, like the the outer suburbs of Lisbon and they make a dance music that's kind of like slow down and warped sounding. It's really cool. Um, a lot of the, I think the main group of people they have this, they go by Familia Fox and like all of them have different acronym and the word Fox in their name. Um, DJ Nigga Fox. DJ Mar Fox. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of like open up our ears a bit to some of these like global sounds and what's going on there and then yeah some of our friends there were showing us other stuff so um and then also out of atlanta and i mean i'm uh, really into american music right now for the first time in a long time i feel like some of the best musics coming out of america particularly with atlanta with the awful records and the stuff that um you know like future metro boom and that young thug um all that hip-hop like the best hip-hop in america coming out of atlanta and L.A., Brooklyn, some really good, good scenes.
7: And what elements are you taking from there and bringing it into, into your music?
8: Well, I think that's like the halftime part. It's like, so like definitely when we're on that halftime zone, that's kind of like inf- has that like American hip hop feel. And then when we double time, that has like this sort of like UK influence or, um, you know, Portuguese influence. It has like that like European dance side. But I mean, it's still very American what we're doing.
7: Uh, cool. Um, can we hear another song? Sure What are you gonna What's the name of this one Coming to Okay
4: No time to think, no time to worry about the consequences, no time to think, no time to think, no time to worry.
7: Um, so you put out two EPs called Energy and Sound, uh, this year. Um, what was the inspiration for those two EPs or how did they come into being?
4: It, um, came from just, uh, improvising and catching the moment and just jamming on machine as for Rusty. And me on microphone and just uh just capturing what comes out, and not going back um, not so much a back and forth, just uh, going at it and capturing the moment. Yeah.
8: Yeah, it was more aggressive than some of the stuff like we were expecting. We kind of just came out and we were rolling with it. Like ener- so that's why we stuck with the energy. You know, like that was what we were feeling.
7: Um and. Is the impro- improvisation happening at the same time or is it you lay out the music and then you respond to it or is it same rooms, same time, same energy?
4: As for this round, uh, Rusty came up with the tracks first and then I went in and just uh, sang on it. Yeah.
8: But yeah, and then even when... But it kind of beats off each other and I think the way that it gets arranged changes after that. And so, um, yeah, there's always like kind of like trying to find creative ways to improvise inside of a machine that like a sampler, you know, that doesn't like expressively work like that. Like, but then you could find these like limitations inside of just like you would with any kind of instrument, but electronically, like how do you do something completely in a moment when the machine's meant to program or to compose? So that's kind of like what we are exploring is like keeping that live energy while you're recording or programming. And so that's how it came out
7: and translating that from like the improvisation do you just kind of play it as a laser do you go back and and maybe edit it or cut it together in a, some way to make cohesion or is it just kind of what happens happens and then
4: i think what? every song is different and we don't have like a one method that we stick to mm. we let the uh track kind of speak for itself because it it comes from the track it's it, inside it like sometimes it um, asks for more attention and time, and and some tracks are just like it raw. So,
8: but yeah, and that's true. But then there are certain rules within it too, like with the, yeah. like how we'll do like sixteen bars or thirty-two bars, eight bars, and there's kind of like we follow these like codes that we learned from working with a lot of the Chicago guys. That was one of the things they really taught us: is you have certain structures, and when you get those structures, you can go wild like whatever you want, but then you, you know, like we're not going to change on the sixth bar. It's going to change on the eighth bar.
7: Right. I mean, creativity always comes from some form of constraint, like when everything's right. an option, right. like nothing happens.
4: That is so true.
7: So yeah. uh, um, that's such a, a great lesson. And and how long did it kind of take for you guys to codify your own set of rules? Like when did that Ooh. come into play?
8: I really think if you notice, we put out three records this year and it's, the last one was a long time before that. We were releasing stuff on SoundCloud and everything, but it took a it took years. Like from where shout we, out to
7: Jamie, by the way, oh, thanks yeah, for yeah. connecting us.
8: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yeah. He he
4: put out, um. Hi Jamie, thank you.
7: <laughs> yeah, you were saying that it was you'd put out a record a long time ago, and then like kind of as it you I put mean, it out yeah, this like, year. yeah,
8: from the the first ones we were talking about, the kind of like acoustic, electronic, um. Explorations to where we're doing right now that was five years. Yeah,
4: yeah. and I think it's about like understanding each other's roles.
8: Like, yeah. you're
4: in charge of this, and I'm in charge of this. Like, understanding the dynamics was definitely an like organic experience. It's not like, oh, you're the producer and you make it from here to here, and I'm the singer, so I sing from here. It's, it's never like that. It was just, uh, yeah. The, I mean, we're
8: both the producer kind of weird. Yeah, business. so
4: understanding that without even uh, like planning or talking about it, just mm. like doing it and kind of like Jim.
7: Um, But I mean, after being playing together for a a number of years, I mean, are the roles set or is it even within like the improvisation that you might change roles or take on new roles or different direction? It's
8: flux, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they're becoming more set. Um, We we would definitely, we're open for anything, but then I feel like kind of like part of what the present has become is... um, I'm like deeply inside the electronics and the mix and she's deeply in the vocals and the mix as well. Kind of. So,
4: songwriting. Yeah.
8: yeah. I mean, th- one thing earlier when we were talking about the improvisation, we don't really like mixing is kind of part of that process too. It's not like we finish it and then now it's time to mix. It's like we finish it and it's finished, um, from the way, so from the start of the composition to recording, to mixing, to mastering, that all kind of happens in the same process and then it's done. Mm-hmm
7: really interesting way to evolve making music so like the output must be higher or is it still you feel the same or there's a lot of stuff that happens that like you learn on that one that's down and then you start again because you're refining the process during the recording
8: yeah I mean we'll for each of the like the energy and sound series which we're not really it hasn't wrapped up yet we still have more and more coming because that's kind of just like we finish and then we finish a number of tracks and then we're like okay these ones are going to get released and then we move on to the next one um, so yeah we get a lot of extra tracks that we got to find stuff to do with. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there,
7: is there and I know it's ever evolving but is there a current checklist or barometer for an energy and soundtrack that's like okay this this hit like a certain these five or six points and it will get released as opposed to another track
8: I think, yeah, because we're going to do other things besides energy and sound, but when it, for the moment, if a, like, like the, song, like the songs we've been playing here, like it has to like, settle, like we have to fill it to that extent, extent, get the same level of excitement, and then then it, gets on, it passes that. Yeah.
4: Yeah, as for me, I think um, the one that the vocals comes naturally and the lyrics comes naturally is the one that I'm definitely going to capture and uh, go deep.
8: Yeah, if you're, if you're if you're working too hard on it, then that's, that's uh, means something. <laughs>
7: uh, I want to make sure we have time for for one more song, but question to each of you: Yeah, what right now is currently influencing you the most on the way in which you create music? Right now, like right now, on I'd,
4: I'd say the voices I've been yeah listening the whole time of oh, the the customers. Oh okay.
7: Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Oh that. How is that playing into it?
4: Oh, it's, it's like, uh, it's music.
8: Okay. I like, uh, I like how you went right now as in this second, in this back room. Cause I was thinking like, okay, over the past couple of weeks, what has been influenced? I mean, you? but I think yeah,
7: both responses yeah. are equally, I mean, however which you might define the present, um, is equally unique. So, <laughs> so you went right now, but right you now. went to the last few weeks. So we can take a very legitimate uh-huh. answer from the past few weeks.
8: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's been a lot about what I hear, like, like in cars in our neighborhood. Like, we live uptown, and when I hear sounds coming through the cars, like, what, what are the sounds that I'm hearing? Is it the synthesizer? Is it, is it the bass line? or is it the hi hat? And, like, of course, like it's got it's usually from a future track, or you know, like, um, what a time to be alive, or something like that. And I'm like, oh, how's that going to work in? And what happens if we double time underneath that? And so, definitely, like the kind of ambient sounds of the city have been at work and then you combine that with sirens and train tracks and all this extra noise too and then something whatever cuts through and like that's kind of like delivering a message that's great um so uh, how can people find you get your eps follow you the best way to find us is soundcloud <coughs> slash the present find us on soundcloud and i'll connect you to the Bandcamp and the twitter and yeah
7: awesome well again thanks jamie uh for putting us together thank you thank and you, uh thank you for joining us and uh, what's the name of the last song you're gonna play for us
4: no, the other one.
7: we're gonna do illusion okay great uh well thanks for listening uh and we will be back next week with another episode of snacky tunes
3: about food we talk about music with musical dudes finger on the pulse snacky tunes
5: this program is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter